Hey folks, welcome back to the next episode of the Jedi Council podcast where we, we're, whoa, whoa, Friday afternoon, where we like to explore mental health in your favorite fictional characters, and we like to misspeak when we introduce podcasts. <laughs> well, at That's least I do. That's our other tradition. Yeah, we have a two-part goal for this podcast, <laughs> and there it is. Katie, or rather, I better introduce myself. I'm Brandon Saxton. And I'm Katie Gordon. Katie, how are you doing this afternoon? I'm doing fine. How are you? Well, I thought I was doing okay until about 30 seconds ago <laughs> when I realized I've presumably lost the ability to speak uh, in a coherent way. So <laughs> That's rough with podcasts. <laughs> it's, uh, it's vital. So uh, let's jump right in with some current events. Uh, first things first... Um, Depending on when you hear this episode, which I think will probably be a week uh, from now, the uh, t- a little teaser trailer for the Justice League came out a couple yesterday or the day before, I think. And so there will be a new Justice League trailer dropping tomorrow. And I, for one, am very excited to see what that holds. Uh, should be pretty awesome, I suspect. The gif of Batman was awesome, and I looked at it for like four straight minutes, <laughs> which is weird because it's just like the same five seconds repeating, but I was really excited about it. So Yeah, the character posters looked really cool, too. Mm-hmm. So I'm looking forward to that, and I'm looking forward to talking a little bit more about that once uh, once we get a chance to see it. Another current event thing, I uh, on our Twitter page, we posted a comic poll to... I was hoping to finally have that empirical evidence that DC Comics was superior to Marvel and to validate everything that I believe in my heart to be true. But instead, I found the opposite. Marvel Comics uh, won the poll fairly handedly. Uh, So, I don't know. I have to do some rethinking (laughs) of my life choices and the things I believe in and stand for. What what was the... There was a pretty... What was the percentage on it? I don't remember off the top of my head. I just looked at it about... I don't know, a half hour ago. Uh, there's there's still six hours open. So okay. Oh, it's 46% Marvel versus 32% DC. Yeah, and then just for uh, completeness sake, Dark Horse Comics came in at about 9%, and Image Comics came in at about 13 So not too bad, uh, you know, for being underdogs in the industry. But Marvel just having that commanding league, or rather commanding lead, even in our Twitter following, which surprises me that anyone who's a fan of Marvel even listened to me speak <laughs> because of my own biases. So I don't know. Pretty interesting, though. And, uh, you know, I think I, I've i said this before, and I'll just say it one more time, that all of my jokes about Marvel are just jokes. I think Marvel comics are great, too, but mm-hmm. you got to have that comedy somewhere, and that's where <laughs> I get mine. So any current events on your end, Katie? Two things. I mean, it's a couple weeks old now, but the uh, third Wonder Woman trailer came out, and it was really cool. It shows Diana as a young girl, and then it shows her um, during her training, her warrior training, so that was great. I continue to be very excited about the movie. Um, The other thing is that Rogue One, the digital version, came out last night. Oh, cool. Are you going to get the digital version? I don't think so. I only own one digital uh, film, actually two. And I've found that it's, I, I understand the appeal to the medium, but it's kind of an inconvenience because, as it turns out, I like to bring movies various places and to watch them, you know, at a friend's house mm-hmm. or maybe at my parents'. And additionally, uh, my internet speed is, is okay, but I, I found that, for, at least for Batman vs. Superman, I bought it in HD, and so it's continually trying to stream it in HD, and then, like, I can't do anything else, really, while, while it's trying to stream the movie. So I don't think I will again. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think I'm going to wait till that one comes out on Blu-ray. They're kind of pushing it, though, in that they mm-hmm. release it, like, a, up to a couple weeks early, mm-hmm. I think. Maybe one or two weeks And early. it is does appeal to those of us who don't want to wait a couple more weeks, but I that, think... <laughs> that's all they got me for Batman vs. Superman, <laughs> exactly. so it, the business model's working, so... Mm-hmm. But I, I'm really looking forward to seeing it again, whether I cave and download it this weekend or I wait until it comes out in physical copy form. Absolutely, yeah, it's a great film. I'm mm-hmm. looking forward to getting my hands on a copy, too, mm-hmm. so... But uh, let's go ahead and jump in for the topic of the week. So I think this week we're going to talk a little bit about uh, major depressive disorder, and we're going to tie that into your, I don't know, one of your favorites, maybe at one point or maybe currently your your top favorite fictional character, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. That's right, yeah. So uh, first things first, maybe we should just, to set the foundation, talk about what does a major depressive disorder consist of. That sounds good. So there are um, there are nine symptoms, and this comes from the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, which is in its fifth edition, which is a classification system used for mental disorders um, created by the American Psychiatric Association. And their main goal in this is, is really to distinguish between someone having a mental disorder like depression, what some people call uh, clinical depression mm-hmm. and or having a major depressive disorder as we would call it versus sadness or mm-hmm. other kind of distress that isn't to that level so there are nine symptoms and if a person has five of those nine symptoms most of the day nearly every day for a minimum of two weeks and it causes them distress and impairment it's considered major depressive disorder. So I'll revisit all the things, the parameters I just did after I named the symptoms. So for major depressive disorder, you have to have one of the following two symptoms. You have to have sad mood or feeling down most of the day, nearly every day. That makes a lot of sense mm-hmm. uh, for major depressive disorder that you have depressed mood. That's kind of the main core feature of it. Or anhedonia, which is without joy, when you're not enjoying things you used to enjoy or you enjoy them significantly less. And so it has to be a minimum of one of those two symptoms to be considered major depressive disorder. And then there are some other symptoms. One is appetite change, so that can be loss of appetite or an increase in appetite. Sometimes this uh, is evident in weight loss or weight gain in a short period of time. Sleep disturbance, which can include both insomnia and excessive sleeping, so sleeping, you know, I don't know, 12 hours a night, not feeling rested as an example. Psychomotor disturbance, which is when the person is either moving much slower than usual or they're moving much more quickly than usual, kind of an agitation so much that other people notice. A sense of fatigue, so even when having gotten adequate sleep, still feeling kind of low energy. And so those are um, five of this. Actually, those are six of the symptoms. <laughs> and I'm going to let Brennan take the next three. <laughs> it, it's that classic uh, Friday afternoon uh, sort of cognitive impairments that we're experiencing, oh, uh, which is a perfect segue into the cognitive symptoms of depression. There you go. Um, so some of the cognitive symptoms that you might see with individuals who are experiencing depression are inappropriate guilt or feeling worthless. And this is something where it's very exaggerated maybe to the situation. They, they feel like they've done something wrong or they feel that very guilty. They don't feel like they're worth anything. 
Um, beyond that, you might see some concentration difficulty or indecisiveness. They might have some of those impairments where they're really having a hard time paying attention to things. Um, and then last, the third cognitive symptoms would be thoughts about death or suicide. So kind of relating back to some of the stuff that we talked about in our Logan episode, uh, just suicidal ideation or thinking that it might be better to go to sleep and not wake up again or things uh, kind of in that nature of... Uh, or in that line of thinking. So those are the three sort of cognitive symptoms. So just to kind of reiterate what Katie said ahead of time, you've got the two emotional symptoms that we sort of started off with, or the two, yeah, I think emotional symptoms or diagnostic criteria, mm -hmm. uh, which is that sad mood and that anhedonia, and they have to have one of those two in addition to some of the cycle or uh, physiological and cognitive symptoms as well. Mm -hmm. And it, I think, uh, and you did a great job saying it, but I always just like to reiterate this point because feeling sad is normal and it's uh, something that everyone experiences. The differentiation for the sad mood in depression is very much that distress and impairment about uh, that associated with it, where it's getting in the way of their social or work or school functioning, and, and it's really inhibiting them from doing the things they need to do. So I, I always like to point out that differentiation a little bit. Yeah, exactly. So it's, you know, sad mood or loss of joy to the point where the person, it's really affecting their life. Maybe they're withdrawing in their social life or they go through the motions, but they're not enjoying it. Uh, maybe the concentration difficulties are to the point mm -hmm. where they're struggling at work or they're struggling at school. And it's important to emphasize the severity of these symptoms mm -hmm. because you don't want to overdiagnose mm -hmm. major depressive disorder. One of the recent controversies with DSM-5 is in previous versions of, of the DSM, someone, if they had those symptoms that we just discussed and it was after losing a loved one and it was due to bereavement, then it wouldn't count as a major depressive episode. But with DSM-5, they decided that stressors of any kind, that there shouldn't be a separate stressor for bereavement, that people can get depressed after losing a loved one. And so they removed that exception that if it's you're having all of those symptoms and it's following bereavement for a certain time period, that it couldn't be diagnosed as depression. And so I think that some people were concerned about that. You know, we don't want to call someone uh, having a mental health problem if they're upset while while um, losing a loved one, but the argument on the other side was that most people, when they're experiencing bereavement, it doesn't go to the extent of a major depressive episode, mm -hmm. and they might not get the help that they need mm -hmm. if, if they don't. So anyway, that's just kind of a relatively current event for the most recent iteration and definition of major depressive disorder. And if I can jump in just for sure. a second, too, I always like to talk a little bit about how when we hear mental health terms used in sort of a casual way in everyday conversation, and I think depression or depressed is one that might be a little bit more common than others. At least that's my sense. I might be wrong. Correct me if you think I'm wrong, Katie. But I don't think it's terribly uncommon. Uh, this is going to be a two-part uh, sort of thought. I don't think it's terribly uncommon to hear people maybe say, oh yeah, I'm so depressed, or I was so depressed. And on the one hand, and like I've sort of said before on this podcast, I when people sort of say, well, what's the harm in saying that? Yeah, okay, you're right, it's just words. But it's important to remember that words have impact. And when you're using the word depressed or depression to describe something that isn't actually a major depressive disorder, I think that you might potentially be contributing to sort of a, a, 
a misinformation or a misperception of what the disorder is, um, which then might lead to some people who sort of say things like, well, uh, you know, I, this is a perfect example. I remember seeing a little Facebook message that said it was a pair of running uh, sneakers, and it just said, these are the only antidepressant I need. And I think it's important to recognize that depression or major depressive disorder is uh, is a mental disorder. It's not just feeling down. Mm-hmm. It's not just feeling a little blue or something, you know. It, it's not easy for those people to just get up or feel better or get up over it, mm-hmm. I think, yeah. is important. But, uh, that's just me and my, you know, I, I like to be careful about language, I guess. I, I think it's important to talk about because uh, a number of the things that we talk about have kind of more common terms. So, like, one of the things we've, we've mentioned a little before is that when someone says narcissistic, they right. don't necessarily mean the personality disorder. And and my, you know, as you can tell, because I've brought up a few times, my major thing is for people who are feeling sad or feeling down after something stressful happening that it's not mistaken for depression, that they understand that it's okay to feel down and upset. And if you try to run too much from feeling sad or feeling upset, then it can actually make things worse Mm -hmm. rather than processing those emotions in some cases. So, uh, so yes, what we're talking about here is, is something different than that range of emotions and maybe different than when someone just says, Oh, this is so depressing. Yeah, absolutely. And, and not to, sort of belabor the point and I know this is something we've talked about in the past but I always think it's important to sort of talk about language and uh, think about the way that we talk about things and how that might impact mental health um, broadly mm-hmm. yeah, so. and just to clarify what we yes. mean when we're saying it Absolutely, because yeah, we have kind of a specific. That's a great meaning. point too that I didn't even consider. <laughs> Thank you. All right, I'll talk a little bit about the prevalence uh, rates of depression. So, um, depression about sixteen percent of Americans experience a major depressive episode at some point uh, during their lifespan. Um, women are twice as likely as men to experience a major depressive disorder. Um, and in terms of comorbidity, uh, which is the occurrence of more than one disorder uh, at one time, uh, with a major depressive disorder, you might see anxiety disorders, substance use disorders, eating disorders, or personality disorders sort of popping up together uh, with one another. That's right. And one of the reasons that depression is so important to talk about, because like Brandon just said, it's relatively common among yeah. the disorders. So compared to something like Uh, bipolar or schizophrenia or anorexia, which are important and we need to pay Mm -hmm. attention to, but often those estimates are that they're, you know, 1% to 3% Mm -hmm. typically versus 16% have -hmm. a major depressive episode at some point in their life. And so it's relatively common. People with major depressive disorders spend an average of, by one study, uh, 16 weeks or four months experiencing significant symptoms in a year. They lose an average of 27 days per year of work. It costs employers loss in productivity. And really important to us is that people who are experiencing depression experience a lot of pain. It puts Mm -hmm. them in a lot of pain. It's very difficult for them and also often for their family members and loved ones. Absolutely. So um, in terms of maybe some of the age differences or when you're when you're going to 
maybe be most likely to see someone uh, experience a major depressive disorder, that's going to clock in somewhere around that 18 uh, to 29-year-old range. Uh, these are the individuals who are most likely to have experienced a major depressive episode in the previous uh, year. Um, and interestingly, you see the lowest rates of depression among people who are over the age of 60, but then at right around age 85, that rate goes up a little bit again. So there's a little bit of a dip after age 60 that you do see climb again um, after around age, age 85. And these statistics are recent as within the last several years, so mm -hmm. there might be slightly more up-to-date. I just like to put that disclaimer out there, but it's a, this is an approximation of, oh, yeah. of things that we've seen with, with research that's prevalence rates from, from relatively recently. Um, one of the important things that we talked about briefly, but m maybe should m mention again to clarify, is that since depression is twice as likely in women, it's interesting, with boys and girls, the depression rates are approximately the same until puberty, and that's when around adolescence, girls start to be twice as likely to have depression as compared to boys. And so you see this split occur at that time. Why does that happen? There are different thoughts on that. Some believe that it is, is hormonal. There's a biological component. Some people believe that it has to do with around that time, um, maybe women are becoming more prone to feeling self-conscious about their body or they're more likely to certain stressors such as uh, being uh, victims in, in sexual assault situations. And so these are the things that have been proposed as hypotheses for that difference. One of the big things that's been studied is looking at how adolescent boys and girls and then women and men cope with stressors differently. And Susan Nolan Hoeksema is a psychologist who was a psychologist very... Uh, passed away relatively recently but and very incredible uh individual too just to oh kind of yeah oh really yeah she she contributed so much and one of the major areas of contribution is that she identified that people who ruminate meaning that after a stressful event happens they tend to kind of um have that thought over and over in their mind. They keep re maybe replaying the event, thinking, why did this happen to me? What does it mean about me? What does it mean about um, what my life is likely to be like? So people are kind of playing it over and mm -hmm. over again in their mind. Those people seem to be particularly at risk for developing depression, both men and women mm -hmm. who ruminate. But she found that women and girls are more likely to engage in rumination as um, a way that's it's viewed as coping by the mm -hmm. person who's doing it and suggested that that might be partially to explain some of the, the gender differences. So it's ongoing questions, but in case you're interested, I thought I'd mention a couple of the mechanisms that seem to be at place. Absolutely. So there are some different uh, biological sort of components that go into major depressive disorder as well. Uh, there does seem to be some sort of a genetic component, for example. Uh, you know, taking a look at family history or twin studies indicate that when you have someone, uh, you know, of a closer relative who has experienced a major depressive disorder, your own likelihood of experiencing a major depressive disorder increases. Um, in addition to that, I think a lot of people, um, and this is my sense, tell me if you have a different sense, Katie, I think in the sort of general population or the way that people think about depression, there's very much an idea that it's a chemical imbalance. I think I've heard that a lot. Is that Yeah, I think that? a lot of that comes from the um, drug company commercials. Mm -hmm. I, right? I think you're exactly right. They even right. have they, the little animated yeah. versions of that. <laughs> they right? do very specifically show that, which mm -hmm. sort of explains where the idea mm -hmm. comes from. And there are uh, theories sort of indicating that there are abnormalities 
activities in serotonin transporter genes um, where people become more depressed after they experience negative life events. Um, but I don't know. It's not 100% accepted. This is the way that people become depressed. Uh, it's important to note that it's not that the the pathway to becoming depressed isn't just going to be a disruption in serotonin uh, transportation or in the serotonin transporter gene, but that psychosocial stressor, stressors um, also play an impact as well as uh, you know cognitive coping styles like rumination that we already discussed. It's it's a very uh, multifaceted, complex sort of um, path that leads to someone experiencing a major depressive disorder. That's right. And in depression, it seems like people get to that point in a variety of different mm -hmm. ways, which is why maybe it's relatively more common as compared mm -hmm. to some of the other disorders. But in general, people who have those susceptibilities, like you're talking about, maybe they tend to ruminate or maybe they have a family history. When they experience some kind of negative or stressful life event, they're at increased risk for developing depression. Um, and we should mention that we were going to talk about treatment for depression. The good news is there are a lot of different treatments mm -hmm. that depression for depression. Um, and I think at that point, maybe we could talk about some of the social and psychological mm -hmm. factors of depression, because I think the treatments have a lot to do with those particular mm -hmm. types of factors, like you said, some of the ways people Absolutely. think and stuff like that. So hold, hold those thoughts on the theory of depression. We'll come back to those. Maybe we can talk about um, Buffy, just to give an example of some I, of the symptoms. That I think I that's a great idea. So this was sort of the mm -hmm. way I was foreseeing, and I didn't run this by you ahead of time. Sorry, so you're gonna, hearing this process you're on hearing, the, <laughs> the we're, we're kind of, uh, you know, pulling back the curtains. You're seeing inside. <laughs> so I was thinking we could go through the Buffy uh, symptoms, and then next week we'll cover the treatments and theories underlying uh, major depressive disorder, and then we might propose as in line with the blog post, how we might recommend uh, Buffy be treated in line with those theories, maybe? Sure, that sounds good. Hopefully it sounds good to you. If not, let us know. Tweet, uh, <laughs> hashtag no Jedi Council. Uh, no, please don't. My my self-esteem will be shattered <laughs> seeing so many no Jedi Councils. No, that sounds great. So uh, let's talk a little bit about Buffy. So this uh, was one um, when we started, you tweeted about that we might podcast about depression. This was one recommendation that we had. It's also one of the blog posts uh, in our blog series about examining uh, fictional characters with psychological evaluation, sort of mock ones. And then it was also someone who you spoke about at one of the events, the Nerd Night event here in Fargo, that we spoke at. So it's it's one that's sort of been in the uh, you know in the Jedi Council works for a while is Buffy. Yes, I am a huge Buffy fan, and I actually played Buffy Trivia this week, and we didn't do too bad, although my team did not win. There are some people who know every single thing. You mean some people who are cheaters. <laughs> they might have. <laughs> I don't know if they were Googling it or what, but I'll be honest, some of those really obscure things they knew. The thing we did the best on, which I was surprised, was they gave quotes, and we guessed the characters, oh, awesome. which I thought was super hard, but um, we ended up getting all of those right. But then we lost in the tiebreaker, which was, how old is Seth Green? Apparently, oh. he's 43, we guessed 45, and wow. the team guessed 44. Very good guess. But not quite right, though. <laughs> not quite right, though. But my problem, and now you're tuning into our new Jedi Council trivia podcast, my problem with <laughs> questions like that is it's not really content about Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I didn't go to Seth Green trivia. I would. I like Seth Green. But it was Buffy trivia, and I didn't go to the Buffy trivia either, but, <laughs> but in spirit I was there. But So I don't know. It was tough. The tiebreaker for the first round 
was what is the square root of the total number of Buffy episodes? And so I think I told you that, but I'll tell our listeners again, too. Um, So anyway, but that's besides the point. The point is I love Buffy. Yes. And though we didn't win, we gave a good effort. Well, you can only (laughs) do your best. It's true, which isn't quite good enough yet. (laughs) (laughs) So I'll study harder next time. But what I do know is season six Buffy is, it's an interesting season because... Some people do not like that. They consider it the, the worst season. And Sarah Michelle Gellar even said that she didn't like it because playing Buffy as someone dealing with depression, it just didn't feel like the character she knew. She felt like she, she, it wasn't the strong Buffy with all, you know, that kind of thing. I mean, she was strong, but she she was feeling depressed. And so. What is it about that that people didn't like? Was it just sort of the, you know, people just don't really like change? Or did they feel like it weakened the character overall? Or I don't know what they didn't like. I mean, it's definitely a very dark and painful episode. At some point, what I'd like to do is do a post and maybe a podcast too. Um, Willow experiences it looks like an addiction to magic. Mm -hmm. And so there are a lot of... Whoa, spoilers, Katie. Well, I know. Hopefully (laughs) 20 years is enough time (laughs) to allow it. And there are some other tragic things that I won't mention, just in case someone hasn't watched it yet. But uh, it's dark. Mm -hmm. It's it's stressful. And Buffy, it's not that they shy away from dark things. They have that kind of stuff. But it's usually kind of balanced with some lightheartedness or like... um, you know, Buffy's herself, and you can count on her. And so my impression, and I don't know, so tweet at us if um, if I'm not capturing your reason for it. That, that's what I've heard. But yeah. I, I love this season. Mm-hmm. But I will admit, if I'm not in a certain mood, I won't watch it. Like, if I'm trying to um, remain in a pretty good mood, I might not watch it because sure. it is it is sad. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, which it should be because she has depression. I think she has depression. They don't mm-hmm. say that on the show. But... Well, tell us why you think that. that I would I would be delighted to talk about <laughs> Buffy even more than I already have. Um, Welcome to our new Buffy cast. <laughs> I would love that. So basically, to start off, Buffy, th- there are a lot of spoilers here. So um, if you haven't watched Buffy yet, tune out. Go watch them before it's removed from Netflix oh, and then yeah, come like back. really soon. Yeah, too. I think it's on Hulu, though, so that's a safeguard. But uh, basically, Buffy dies at the end of season five. And she is brought back to life by said magic person, Willow, and, and her other friends. And they think they're doing a good thing or they just they want her back. Mm-hmm. Um, Naturally. Yeah. So she becomes alive again in the grave and she has to... Uh, so she, she, has, she starts off in a coffin underground having to work her way out. So that's in itself is... would traumatize many a person Mm -hmm. that would be a scary event to happen so she starts off that way and then when she gets out it it slowly is revealed over time that it wasn't they thought she was like at some place bad and they they brought her back and were saving her but it turns out she was in a place that she believed was like heaven she didn't have any pain or any worries and they've brought her back to where now she has to worry about her friends and family and so she does some things that i think particularly are consistent with depression. So specifically, sad mood. She tries to hide the fact that she's sad for most of her loved ones, but at one point she breaks down to Tara and reveals that she feels sad all of the time. And she also exhibits some of that anhedonia where she has diminished pleasure or interest in activities. Um, she sings, and during the, there's a musical episode where it kind of reveals 
their true feelings is kind of the gist of it um, come out through the songs. And there's a song she sings called Going Through the Motions. And to me, that really is similar to how people who are depressed feel like she's doing the thing she's supposed to do, but it she doesn't feel any engagement or connection with it. In terms of feelings of worthlessness or excessive guilt, she's talking again to Tara about this relationship with Spike. So she is the vampire slayer. She is in a kind of sexual relationship with Spike, and he's a vampire who has done some pretty horrible things. And she feels ashamed and hides the fact that she's involved with him. And beyond that, where we get to like the excessive guilt part is that she says it's unforgivable what Mm -hmm. she's done. And so that, that can seem what it's like in depression. Like they wouldn't forgive her. She has difficulty making decisions. She's not sure whether she should go back to school or get a job, whether or not she should be involved with Spike. Some of this is pretty consistent with her developmental level, but um, it's no, it might have to do with this too. She might have some difficulty concentrating. For example, she blames herself and kind of her focus on how bad she feels as a reason why she didn't notice that Willow's magic use was getting out of control or that her sister Dawn was shoplifting. She said it was hard to focus on things other than her pain. And then she has thoughts of death or suicide, that symptom, in my opinion, Um, These are all my opinions, by the way. Obviously, I didn't evaluate her. I'm just speculating. Um, She, Buffy becomes invisible during one episode, and she learns that she might die again, and that makes her realize that she wanted to live. That implies that she didn't feel like she wanted to live before, so I thought that might signify some thoughts of death. So what we see is her not acting like herself. She's hiding things from her friends. Her friends means so much to her. I mean, that's a theme throughout the entire show. They are her social support network. They're like family to her. So the fact that she's hiding Spike from them and the fact that she doesn't feel good about that relationship, but she continues to be in it because a a couple reasons. She feels like she can talk to Spike about things that she can't tell the rest of her her friends about, partially because, well, he's he's not alive, and and that's part of it, Um, but also because she feels in the short term better when she is around him. And so to me, it's, it's a powerful display of a lot of these symptoms and the fact that there's this very strong superhero going through this stuff is an inspiration. I think it's a great representation of vulnerability in someone who is strong. Yeah, I think I get the sense that's why a lot of people like Buffy in general. Mm-hmm. Um, not only just specific to this example, which is a great example, but I get the sense that's why a lot of people like Buffy, um, similar to some other superheroes. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I guess I should mention towards the end of the season, she does seem to come out of it a bit, and some of that is reestablishing herself and her connections with her friends, and I do think that that support that she has is key, and that reflects real life, that people who are struggling with depression, who have a strong sense of support and connection with others, tend to fare well. So as a psychologist and a Buffy fan, is it your sense that this is a fairly accurate representation of what depression looks like? Uh, I certainly feel that way. Mm -hmm. I mean, like I said, they don't... It's not clear that they were trying to make her depicted as someone who has depression. They never say she has depression or anything like that. It's just when I was watching it, it seemed like that was kind of the cluster of symptoms, even though a lot of this stuff is fictional and unrealistic that occurs during the season. Those parts seemed to actually be consistent with what people really experience. 
Oh, that's very interesting. Good work, Joss Whedon. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think so. And maybe, and I know we're we're short on time, so but maybe since I kind of started talking about this, I'll just say that I identified a, a few things that I thought helped her to get out of it besides sure. connecting with her friend. She does end her relationship with Spike because she overall felt that it it wasn't helping her health. Her ex-boyfriend Riley comes back and he tells her that she's the strongest woman he's ever known. He's and there's nothing um Tara assures her that there's nothing wrong with her. So she has those reassurances. Um and she also has this experience where in another episode the world is about to end and she is glad that it didn't end. And so that kind of helps her to realize that she has this commitment to living and to protecting the world and also a lot of it too is just being able to work with others so that all of the burden of saving the world doesn't fall just on her shoulders but that she has kind of a team that she can work with i love it i love everything about it well said Katie. <laughs> uh should we move on to some of the uh things that we got on twitter yeah let's do that okay that sounds good and just to reiterate again we're going to return to the buffy uh, sort of theme next week uh, when we talk a little bit about the treatments and some maybe some of the theories underlying major depressive disorder and we'll tie that into some of what we might recommend uh, as a potential treatment for Buffy just sort of given this fictional case conceptualization. Mm-hmm. So um, I want to point out or maybe uh, clarify right away about Twitter. Uh, we had a lot of really great responses to folks who are interested in hearing us talk about major depressive disorder. I tried to sort of get all the People who tweeted at us here on my note sheet here. I may have missed some folks. We we are so fortunate that we get so many interesting people tweeting and, and interacting with us on Twitter. So <laughs> if I did miss you or if I don't bring up your comment or tweet, uh, please forgive me. I, it's possible I may have missed it. And I just would like to reiterate how much we appreciate having people really engage with us with this material because that's literally the whole reason why we do it. So. Mm-hmm. So to start things off, I wanted to, uh, Dr. Craig Pullman tweeted at us and asked us a little bit about Yoda, and he was wondering, uh, when we see Yoda in the original Star Wars trilogy, are we seeing uh, depressive disorder, are we seeing dysthymia, which we didn't talk about, but is kind of a persistent uh, depressive disorder that you see for a couple years, or are we just seeing normal behavior? Um, So, uh, testing my memory a little bit, I didn't have any time to go back and revisit Star Wars, Uh, so with that grain of salt that I might be misremembering things a little bit, I do remember Yoda acting a little weird, uh, which I am not saying that's depression or not, I'm just saying he's kind of an eccentric person. Well, alien, I don't know, I don't want to be specious, (laughs) but... uh, uh, he's he's engaging in some silliness, and as a silly person, I can appreciate that. Um, but I seem to remember it being somewhat consistent or normal behavior. <laughs> and if I remember right, Yoda is like 800 years old at that point, hundreds of years old. Someone tweeted at me if I'm wrong. Um, so from a developmental psychology perspective, I'm not really sure uh, from a lifespan development sort of angle what people really would act like. After 800 years of life. Well, this is where some of the nonfiction and fictional part, we hit those limits sometimes, we, and and that that might be it. We do our best, mm-hmm. but my, my official uh, final say is that it's just normal Yoda behavior. <laughs> but uh, I am open to other interpretations. That's right. These are all just our opinions. Absolutely. And 
If you don't like him, unsubscribe. <laughs> no, no, I'm just kidding. I could never be so callous. I can't even pretend. Uh, another one was from Evan, who's uh, at From the Wastes on Twitter. He's a really interesting. I, I followed him on Twitter, and he does a blog where he talks about dystopian sort of novels and stories, which I'm very much mm-hmm. into. So I always thought that was very cool when I saw that, and he's been great about interacting with us. Uh, he asked about The Road, which is a Cormac McCarthy novel, uh, which was made into a movie with Viggo Mortensen. Um, I read the first part of the novel, and I think I may have turned on the movie, but I didn't finish it. Um, so I th- I'm intrigued by the novel, and I want to return to it someday because I didn't finish it. And the reason I didn't finish it is because the novel is unique in that it doesn't contain any quotation marks. So as someone who I, I read a fair amount, and I'm used to reading dialogue in books with quotation marks or being indicated with quotation marks, I was having a heck of a time really keeping, keeping it straight a little bit while I read it. Uh, but it does deserve another chance, and I would be very interested to talk about the story once I have a better understanding of it. But it, uh, just based on a purely speculative sort of stance, it does make sense to me that someone may become depressed in that sort of uh, world. I'm going to leave it at that. Okay. <laughs> Another one that we had uh, was from the folks over at Gaming the Mind. From what I understand, they are a couple of psychiatric trainees. They interact with us on here from time to time, and they do some really cool stuff about uh, gaming and uh, mental health and stuff like that. Uh, so I really like uh, the stuff that they, they do as well. And they tweeted at us about Daredevil, actually, and, and uh, shared a blog post with us about how Daredevil experiences depression. Uh, so folks who have listened to this show before know that I like to pick on Marvel Comics. Uh, like I said earlier in this episode, I like Marvel Comics plenty, but I haven't read that many Marvel Comics. I have seen the Daredevil TV show, the first two episodes. I guess there are only two episodes, so both of those. Um, and there's not a lot in the way of the sort of depressive disorder uh, depicted in the show, but uh, from what I understand, there are some compelling examples of it in the comics. So I don't know much about it, but it does seem to like it's there. And any time that I can see or I hear about mental health being uh, displayed accurately in comics, I like to hear about it, and I would be interested in taking a look further into that because it sounds awesome. And the link that was sent to us I thought was very well written, as well as the comment that it's... Uh, important to also have men in Mm -hmm. pop culture who are represented as dealing with mental disorders because there can be a stigma and shame. There is one in general, but sometimes um, men can have additional obstacles in seeking help because it's not viewed as, you know, as part of their their gender role that they're supposed to not seek help and not need any help and stuff like that. And so having a representation of someone, especially a superhero and someone who's strong, that might encourage people to be more open and seek help when they need it. And so I thought that was a great point. Thanks so much for tweeting that at us. Absolutely. Uh, another great tweet that I've got was from Diana, who's on Twitter, um, at, I don't know if this is all one word, so I'm just going to give the letters, at uh, T-O-F-R-I-K-I, I'm not sure exactly. Uh, how they would like that pronounced, I'll just leave it as is and give you the letters. Uh, And they brought up uh, an interesting example in Katniss Everdeen's mom from the Hunger Games trilogy. Uh, So I've read the books a couple of times, and I've seen the movies, uh, all of them, at least one time. And I think that's uh, another really interesting example. Um, And I think someone could maybe make a compelling case for a major depressive disorder based on some of what we see, especially with her disengaging from really her life and her daughters. 
Um, but on the unfortunate part of that example, and I think it's a wonderful example, is it suffers from what we see with a lot of these fictional characters that we like to think about, is that there's not a lot of content. Uh, unfortunately, she's kind of a tertiary character in terms of the story, so we don't get to see if she's experiencing a lot of the specific symptoms that we talked about earlier. So it would be impossible, unfortunately, to say whether or not she meets the diagnostic criteria, but I would certainly agree uh, with the idea that she's definitely experiencing some symptoms and or signs of depression. Okay, and I can't comment because I haven't seen or read that. Brandon is more familiar with <laughs> with a lot of these, so... Uh, the, Thanks for, the, for picking up my slack. That just indicates that I should spend more time studying and less time <laughs> with the good popular culture. In <laughs> uh, our last, uh, or the last tweet that we have time to Can talk about. Can I add oh, second to last just because oh, I you wanna, mean, please. I would like to add. Go ahead. I haven't talked about it yet. Um, I just wanted to, sorry for interrupting. No, no <laughs> I just wanted to add um, Jay Kayla, the username, at Kayla Simpson, who suggested Buffy the Vampire Slayer and said it's an obvious one for this episode also importance of support system and not giving up when things seem dark thank you so much for saying that I completely agree obviously we talked about Buffy a lot I could talk about her for another six seven hours on this topic but we don't want to lose too many people (laughs) including my co-host would get bored at that point but I I just want to say that I appreciate that it's fun to talk to other Buffy fans and I agree that that's the big thing. She is feeling horrible, and she is in a dark place. But through her support system and through her persistence, she doesn't give up, and she ends up coming through it. And I think that's a really meaningful thing for people to see and connect with. So thank you. Oh, absolutely. Thank you so much for catching that one, Katie. I'm, I tried to get them all, so thank you for picking up the slack. <laughs> uh, reciprocal. Uh, uh, absolutely. So, And one more, uh, of course, from our good, good friend Lauren, who is at Penguin Gone Mad, who's been just an absolutely wonderful supporter and advocate of the Jedi Council from our very beginning, early stages uh, from our, our, our Padawan, when we were Padawan <laughs> Council. Uh, I appreciate having her. She suggested Bojack Horseman, who uh, is actually a character that I think we've both had suggested to us multiple times, uh, but suffers from the classic case of we don't have enough time to watch every TV show, unfortunately. But uh, it's a good suggestion, and I think absolutely. it's something... You know, worth looking at, especially it sounds like it may be particularly relant absolutely it, enough people have suggested it, maybe more than any other character we've had suggested mm-hmm. actually, so there's certainly something compelling about the character that's getting people thinking about mental mm-hmm. health, so it is something that uh when the we can catch our breaths in terms mm-hmm. of time uh that I think we we would absolutely love to check out and uh report back on because it does sound like an intriguing character. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, as always, that's all the all the Twitter callouts or yeah, I always shoutouts. <laughs> Why do I say callouts? I don't what, know, Brandon. <laughs> what is it with me and my like propensity for wanting to call people out on the Jedi Council callout cast? <laughs> Jeez, Louise. Uh, shoutouts. Uh, thank you so much, everyone, for the absolutely wonderful suggestions. We hope you've liked this first part of our episode. We're going to do a second part for sure. Uh, maybe a third one, but certainly a second one, uh, con- continuing our discussion on major depressive disorder and tying it in to Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Um, I'll save my Pearl of Wisdom for the closing, because I'm 
I'm, I only have so much executive functioning to come up with so many pearls of wisdom. I don't want to burn them up on every episode. I like to save them up. Uh, pearls of wisdom are a finite resource, so I like to save them. It better be a good one. Uh, well, now the pressure's on. Um, as always, I want to give a, a, a shout-out, not a call-out, to the Geek Therapy Podcast Network, which we are so fortunate to be a part of. If you haven't had a chance to check out the other great shows, uh, shows like Psych Tech or Geek Therapy, Rolling for Change, uh, there's a lot of great shows on there. Five of us total now. Uh, it's absolutely good stuff. Last week you got to hear the uh, interview that we did with Josue, and he's just a, a wonderful person. So go check out the other shows on the network. They're all very good. And if you like what you hear from our show, if you could just take a second and leave us a review or tweet at us or send us a message, tell us what you like. Tell us what you'd like to hear more about. We'd love to uh, just address. We, we're a podcast of the people, and we <laughs> want to talk about what you want to hear about. So... Uh, that's all I've got. Anything else from you, Katie? No, thank you for listening. All right, sounds good, folks. And uh, and the the sign off for today uh, from Fargo. Stay frosty. <laughs> <laughs>